This podcast is proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, giving is a very deeply personal thing, and they believe that your fundraising should be too. This is actually something we talk about a lot on this very podcast in terms of how can we grow, improve, and optimize giving and generosity. So traditional impersonal fundraising tactics often alienate donors and create a distance between them and the impact that they want to have. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. And I have to say, I think it's a great product. I've referred multiple nonprofits and charities over there in the past and continue to do so in the future because I believe in the people and the product and I just think it's a really good modern piece of fundraising focused software. So I recommend you check it out. And if you are interested in finding out more, you can go to virtuous.org slash generosity. That is virtuous, V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. And in today's episode, Brady talks to Dr. Kiki, Chief Behavioral Scientist at Donor Voice. This episode is all about behavioral science, self-determination theory, and donor identity. You'll get to hear about Dr. Kiki's field, behavioral science, how it differs from seemingly related fields, about how Donor Voice puts that practice into play, and how the theory could look in your own fundraising. Now, when I finish listening to this episode, my perspective on how I communicate and interact with our audience here at Next After completely shifted, and it gave me some great new ideas. So I hope you get the same value out of it that I did and maybe learn something new today. So without further ado, I will hand things on over to Brady. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Hi, Kiki. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Brady. Brady. Thank you for inviting me. All right. So we're going to talk about your field, behavior science, and uh, we're really going to push the limits of my knowledge and cognitive powers. So I'm going to do my best to keep up. But before we talk about uh, kind of all those different things uh, and wonderful things that you're doing in researching, how did you end up in this field of study and focusing on behavior science and how it applies to fundraising? Yeah, well, my whole background is psychology. So I've, after I finished my bachelor degree in Greece, that's where I'm from, and my master's in neuroscience in Crete, wonderful Greek island, great two years. Sounds lovely. Uh, I then went to London for my PhD in cognitive psychology. And during the last year of my PhD, I accepted a part-time position as a data analyst in a market research company. And that's when I started applying these insights in, to real-world problems, and I was hooked. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I abandoned academia, and I started doing exactly that. And the focus on fundraising came a couple of years later after I, I, I had some experience in applying these uh, insights in the real world. And then I started thinking, where, where do I want to have an impact? And I had various offers from... Uh, 
other market research companies or, you know, uh, or to increase consumer goods, sales and all that. And at the same time, I had this opportunity to apply to fundraising and I preferred that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And we're all thankful and glad that you did. Um, All right. So behavior science, we're going to talk more about how, you know, this is actually applied to fundraising and some of the things that we know about humans and donor behavior. But can you just kind of define behavior science for us and maybe how it differs from terms that are maybe more common, like behavioral economics or philanthropic psychology or other kind of seemingly related fields? Can you just unpack some of that for us? Yeah, there seems to be a lot of confusion um, and it's justified. There's a lot of terms flying around. The, The simplest way to think about it is behavioral science is any science that tries to explain human behavior. And it could include a variety of disciplines like uh, evolutionary psychology, cognitive psychology, social psychology, and behavioral economics should be under this umbrella of behavioral science. And behavioral economics is trying to explain economic decision-making, economic behavior, how we evaluate risks, values, and all of that. Now, philanthropic psychology, again, is a subdomain of um, an effort to explain human behavior that is specific to philanthropy, why people help one another. And it could be expressed in many different ways. It could be uh, uh, giving up your time, giving up money, or volunteering, or just helping someone in need in your community. So these are the differences. Hopefully that makes it a little bit clearer. No, it definitely does. Even just the idea of kind of the umbrella of there's behavioral science. And then within behavioral science, there's these kind of more specific offshoots like behavioral economics and philanthropic psychology and things like Mm -hmm. that. So what are maybe some of the mistakes that that you see people make when trying to maybe apply science or maybe people like myself or agencies that are kind of using terms and techniques? I I know this is something you all talk about a lot at Donor Voice. Yeah, um, in two words, oversimplifying and overgeneralizing. So behavioral economics or behavioral science, however we want to call it, has become very popular all of a sudden, even though it exists for decades. And that popularity risks being its downfall because people feel very familiar with the terms and the biases, for example, and that has very, two dangerous consequences. The first one, everyone thinks is an expert. Just because we can talk about the biases or identify examples, people think they, they're experts around them and they know how to apply them. And the, but they fail to understand their complexities and the intricacies, the nuance around designing an intervention. And the other thing is that most people treat biases as laws that are applicable to everyone everywhere. Mm. So individual differences, contextual differences, or any other nuances is out of the window. And that means also that they might skip an essential step, which is testing. If, if a bias is a law, which is applicable to everyone everywhere, it means I can grab it and apply it to my setting, to my people. Mm wrong you need to test it because it might have different effects um so that that's the uh, we understand the appeal of over over generalizing and oversimplifying but that doesn't do justice to behavioral science and actually because 
um, these interventions are not well thought out or properly designed. They lead to um, results that are not significant. There is no impact. And people think that it's the science that is flawed, not the execution of it. So they start to dismiss mm. behavioral economics and behavioral science because it has been applied by non-experts. Yes. Uh, some of that hits a little close to home, but I think that's very, very well, well said. And so we're going to talk more about maybe like how can we um, apply some of the, these types of concepts to our fundraising and what can we learn? Because we can't just say there's, there's nothing that we should ever do uh, across all nonprofits all the time. Everything needs to be custom and unique. Like we just can't live in a world that is like that. So we, we have to draw some insights and parallels and do some generalization, but the point of oversimplification, overgeneralization mm -hmm. is, is bang on and, and well done. Um, so I, I want to dive a, a little bit deeper into some of the, the research and, and methodology that, that you use and that you talk about a lot at Donor Voice and that I've been learning a ton from. So, so again, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Um, and part of that is self-determination theory and really kind of what drives at a fundamental level kind of like human behavior. Um, can you talk about what self-determination kind of theory is? What are some of those key components? And then how do we apply this to fundraising? Yes, of course. Before I do that, I'll create a link between what you last said, that we can't customize everything. There needs to be some generalization. The key is to know what can be generalized mm. and what can't be generalized. Self-determination theory is an example of what could be generalized hmm. across uh, charities and organizations. Self-determination theory is about what drives human motivation. And the assumptions are that people have a need for personal growth hmm. and that drives our behavior. And autonomous motivation is important. Like, Sometimes we're motivated by external, external things like rewards, prizes, that's called extrinsic motivation. But self-determination theory focuses on what drives us, the, the, the motivation that comes from within. And that's the intrinsic motivation. So according to self-determination theory, in order to achieve psychological growth, People need to satisfy their innate universal psychological needs. And these are true for everyone. That's why I'm saying this is general. You can generalize this. There, we, we all have a need for autonomy. The need to feel in control of our decisions, uh, to know that our opinion is valued and respected. We all have a need to feel competent, that our actions lead to positive results. And that's very uh, true for charitable behavior. And we all have a need for relatedness, to feel connected to others, uh, to have a feeling of belonging and to be attached to other people. So that's the basics of self-determination theory. Um, I don't know what else would be helpful for me to explain in this. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the things that I've observed, the more that I've been kind of going through, through your research and how this applies to the work that we do or just all my time spent in fundraising is that, especially in digital and direct response, where I've spent most of my career, I think we focus so much on competence way more than the others, right? It's very mm -hmm. much like, here's what your donation will do. Here's how you're making a good decision. Let us build trust. Here's this very tangible ask. It's really focused on 
competence and sometimes at at the expense of autonomy, right? It's like you will give us fifty dollars and we've locked in, you know, fifty dollars throughout and we don't let you choose. You know, it's it's very high on competence, not so much on autonomy. And we talk about relatedness and connection in relationships and fundraising, but you know, the more that we observe nonprofit behavior, the more you wonder, I don't know how much we're actually fostering connectedness and relatedness. So that's what I've observed as we focus so much on competence. But do you see that there's kind of in fundraising, there is more of a balance of one than the other? Are are all three of these kind of equally weighted in humans? Uh, are all three of these equally weighted when it comes to fundraising? You know, what is some of the interaction of these three elements uh, to fundraising that you've seen? I think that the starting point is competence when it comes to fundraising, because if I don't feel like my donation is going to make a difference, why give it all? Right. So it's not a mistake or it's not wrong to focus on competence. Uh, however, to continue a relationship with a donor, all three elements are important. All three needs are important. Um, so in your ongoing relationship with them, you need to continue to explain how their donation is making a difference. You need to also give them choices on how they give, which is one of the key uh, failings of uh, charitable organizations, that, that restriction. Uh, you can only give monthly. You can't make a one-time uh, one gift with this campaign. Or there is, there's a ton of restrictions that... I think they're coming from uh, the organization because of the structure, the processes. It's not that they, they don't want to allow supporters to have free will. It's all because uh, things are the way they are. Um, however, that means that donors feel they're not in control. They, feel, they might feel pressured. Uh, they don't feel like um, what they want to give is appreciated. Why wouldn't you accept my... Uh, $10 right now instead of a monthly gifts, which I can't afford. Yeah. That, um, I just want to mm -hmm. jump in there because that's, that's one of the ironies, I think, of the nonprofit space is thinking specifically about recurring giving, you know, where we've evolved a lot and, and there's a lot of room to go in the United States. But a lot of it, I know there's tons of organizations that um, wouldn't even really like communicate to monthly donors. And I've heard this from people saying, we're worried that if we tell them they have a monthly donation, they will cancel it. Right. So a lot of this, I think, is actually driven by fear. We don't want people to unsubscribe from our newsletter. So we don't proactively say, hey, would you like to unsubscribe in preferences? We don't want them to stop giving. So we don't actually tell them that they're actually giving. And it's actually this kind of fear based control that is, I think, partly contributing to the fact that we lose donors and we have unsubscribe rates as opposed to being more, you know, front foot and saying, Hey, would you like to upgrade or cancel your donation? Put it on pause for the summer if you're a teacher. You know, okay. these types of stances, I think, I think it, a lot of it comes out of this uh, fear-based mindset that we have, right? I, I don't know if that's true, but that's, that's my perception, at least. That's my perception, too. Uh, the weird thing is that retention is really low anyway. So <laughs> right. I don't know what we're, what are we afraid exact, uh, right. exactly, <laughs> making it worse? How could it possibly be worse? Right. <laughs> It's a great point. <laughs> the risk, we feel like it's such a risky proposition, but really the risk is so low because it can't, you know, really get, yeah. you know, that much work. Um, can you share maybe an example? I know I was just actually reading a post this morning about some of the work you've done with a client. I know that you apply this all the time, which is why I love your work and research because it's applied as opposed to a lot that is maybe less applied. But can you give an example of maybe how competence, autonomy, connectedness uh, actually relates to a fundraising appeal or a campaign or a nonprofit? 
Yes, and of course, channel makes a difference and can make one or the other need more prominent. So in, in any face-to-face or phone conversation, relatedness becomes more important because you, you have an actual person you're talking to, right. which is not as easily done through a letter on it or an email. Um, so let's take a face-to-face uh, situation as an example. Uh, I, we said that um, by having a campaign that only accepts monthly donations and doesn't allow people to make a one-time gift, that reduces autonomy. By allowing people or giving the chance to give either the amount, the frequency um, that they desire, that will increase autonomy. And that's true across channels, obviously. Um, About impact, you mentioned that charities already do a good job at it, at focusing on what your donation could do. I agree. Yes, there is a lot of information around impact and the need and However, there is room for improvement because how you talk about the need and the impact you have could have an effect on how um, effective you think you'll be. Uh, Like it's counterintuitive, but we know that when you talk about big numbers and how big the need is, people tend to give less because they feel helpless and they feel like their donation is not going to make a difference. Mm So there's room for improvement on how we talk about impact as well. And as for relatedness, uh, most donors find uh, fundraisers friendly and warm and they have a positive experience with them. However, the best way to increase relatedness, find out who the donor is, what's their connection to the cause and frame the issue and the donation ask around what interests them and their goals and their values. And that's how you increase relatedness with the organization. This episode and podcast are proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, you've heard Brady talk about it with our guests before, but I wanted to remind you that giving to a cause is deeply personal and your fundraising should be too. Unfortunately, Today's nonprofits are handcuffed to outdated fundraising models that reserve personal connections for a select few major donors. Instead of creating connection, traditional impersonal tactics alienate your donors and create distance between the donor and their impact. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships at scale. Responsive fundraising with Virtuous combines modern technology, data intelligence, and donor-centric giving experiences to foster personalized conversations with every donor. Virtuous is more than just a CRM. They unify fundraising, marketing, and donor development activities, ridding teams of redundant back office tasks, and revealing the insights needed to deliver dynamic campaigns. And all of this happens in one place. You can turn data into deeper donor relationships and grow your fundraising with Virtuous. And to learn more about responsive fundraising with them, you can visit virtuous.org generosity. That's V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Yeah, and maybe that's a good transition into this other area that um, you, know, you and Donor Voice spend a lot of time talking about and I've learned a lot from 
identity satisfaction, preferences, and commitment in, you know, the overarching thing. And I use this example all the time. Like if I tell you that I'm, you know, a 30 something person living in North of Dallas, you don't know anything about me other than I'm in my thirties and I live North of Dallas, right? You yeah. don't know that I'm an adoptive father. You don't know that I worked in international development. You don't know that I'm Canadian. You don't, you know, these are all things that are more tied to my identity that you have no idea, right? But most of the time we target people based on like, how old are you? Where do you live? Possibly what's, you know, your race or gender. And well, how much did you give last time? And none of these things actually, at least on the surface, tell us anything about who people really are. So how can you uh, learn more about who people really are and how do these concepts of identity satisfaction, preferences and commitment kind of work together so that we can move beyond just kind of these superficial mm -hmm. ways to talk to donors? You know why we target people based on demographics and all that information you just described? Because it's easier. Yeah. It's information you can find or you can buy. If you want to target people and tailor communications based on why people give, you need to ask them. That's the key difference. Hmm. So when we talk about identity, we're talking about people's motivation for support, their connection to the cause. It has nothing to do with your organization or your brand. It's who I am and my values and goals, what I want to achieve and giving to an organization that uh, shares the same values and goals as I do, that it gives me the opportunity to express who I am. But I don't need to give to a specific cause to do that. If I'm not satisfied with uh, the relationship between me and the organization, I can express my identity any other way. So I, I love dogs. I adopted a stray. I don't need to give to animal welfare or an animal shelter mm. or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So that's um, identity. It's uh, people's connection to the causes, why they choose to support this cause. And it's not about you. It's about who they are. And if you frame the issue to reflect their values and goals, then you'll increase their engagement and commitment to your organization. And the only way to really get that is by asking them. I just want to make that clear, right? Yes. The, well, first of all, you need to know what supporter identities are important for your cause. And it's, I mean, most organizations have a good guess, like health organizations, it's connection to the disease, right? And in cancer charities, if you, you or a loved one has cancer or you care for someone who has cancer, uh, and it, it's the same thing for different uh, types of organizations. There are some, certain hypotheses, but there will be differences. So you need to find out what's the supporter identity that matters for your cause. And then, yes, you need to start capturing that information from every single donor. And that's where the hassle is. And when there is hassle, there is uh, less uptake. But the, 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 the result is going to be way more rewarding than what you're doing now segmenting people by channel or demographics or anything else. Yeah. And I think that's where kind of the, the rubber hits the road. I mean, we know this for, for testing, for example, right? That's what we do all, all day, every day for the most part. But we know tons of organizations don't test. And a lot of it is it feels like it's extra, feels like it's hassle, feels like it's something else, something more. And organizations and people, to be fair, are strapped. They're resource strapped, time strapped. So how do you get beyond the idea of that, like, oh, that sounds like so much work. Is it just like, well, you can keep doing what you're doing and keep getting the same results, 
or we can do something different, or some of these case studies of saying, when we talk to people as if they're humans and we actually know something about them as opposed to, hey, hello, 30-year-old male, you know, then we can improve results and like the ROI, or how do you get that kind of, you know, buy-in for organizations and people to do it? Because it sounds, it does sound like a lot of extra work and effort, you know? Uh, well, you can't convince everyone mm. to do it. Just like you can't convince everyone to become your supporter, and you shouldn't. Just focus on your highly committed people, those who have a connection to the cause. Right. So people who want to make a difference in fundraising, they know they need to start doing things differently mm -hmm. because everything we've been doing the last how many decades, they lead to the same results. We don't see an increase in retention, in giving, or anything else. Mm -hmm. So things need to change. And those who appreciate it, they adopt this new approach because it makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, how would you react if someone was talking to you as if you were a, a number in a spreadsheet mm -hmm. or like an ATM machine? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't respond well to it. We know it in practice. It's just that because it's difficult to do right. and it's a hassle that we postpone it. But more and more organizations adopt this new approach and yeah, all our clients are trying to, to apply all these insights. So hopefully, for sure, uh, and more and more people will adopt this. All right, uh, I kind of sidetracked us. You, you just did identity and there's still the, the other ones that we want to cover. So yes, sa sorry. satisfaction, <laughs> preferences and commitment. No, it was my fault, it was bad hosting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's a natural conversation. <laughs> So commitment is um, refers to the strength of uh, the relationship between the donor and the organization. So unlike identity, which is the connection to the cause, commitment is the, the is specific about your organization, and it's not static. You can increase people's your donor's commitment, or you could decrease it. You can increase it by delivering consistent, meaningful experiences, right? And of course, newer donors will be uh, not as committed as existing donors, but also with, within your new donors, there will be some people who are more familiar with your brand and that's more committed to your brand. So commitment varies, but also it's not static. You can do something about it. Identity, you can't change. You can discover it and mm. try to tailor content based on it. Commitment, you need to make sure that any interactions you have with your donors are meaningful experiences that will increase commitment. One of the How things, can they, oh, yeah. I was just, one of the, the big things that I've learned, especially from, you know, former colleague, Nick Ellinger around commitment, especially in the mail, where there's such a hard cost. You know, if you're mailing very, very, very low committed donors, you're just, you're just throwing money out the window, essentially, right? Like if I give to a cause because you asked me to, because now we've had this connection, I may have no con connection or real commitment to that organization. My commitment connection is to you. Mm -hmm. That's very different than if it was, you know, an, a foster care and adoption charity in North Texas that I give to. Like that's a totally different equation based on my commitment. And so being able to quickly identify who's maybe possibly more committed to our organization does have some, you know, bottom line benefit, does it not, in terms of where we spend our time, energy, and resources? Definitely. Both identity and commitment can inform your targeting and your acquisition strategy. You shouldn't waste time trying to convince people who are never going to give to your cause. Right. Uh, 
just try to identify those who already have a connection, who have a commitment to the organization, and that's your key audience. Great. So two more. Satisfaction preferences. Yes. Satisfaction. <laughs> it makes sense. We all know that if people are not satisfied with an experience, they're not going to repeat it. But what we we want to stress is that it's not the global satisfaction that matters, like how satisfied as are you as a supporter? Because questions like these don't offer you tangible, actionable insight. Even if someone says I'm unsatisfied, unless they take the extra time to elaborate on why they're unsatisfied, you don't get any information about what you should do differently or what you should improve. Mm. So the, what's, the next step, what's the, um, the better way to assess satisfaction? That it, uh, goes back to self-determination theory where you need to ask supporters if their basic needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness are satisfied mm. in key interactions with the organization. So it's not about your holistic experience with the organization, it's about that phone call, that conversation, that mailing, how good a job did it do at making you feel autonomous, competent, related? Obviously, that's not the question. There's a, <laughs> uh, we have proprietary items for that, but that's the idea. And the beauty of that is when you get the feedback, you know exactly what you're doing well and you should do more of it. You know exactly where you fall short. So if someone doesn't feel competent enough, you know that you need to add a few more examples of how your gift is making a difference. Mm -hmm. If they don't feel too related, it means you're either not doing a good job at talking to, speaking to who they are, their identity, or the fundraiser wasn't friendly. So you, you know where the problem is and what you need to fix. And that's what will determine um, a good donor experience, which will increase commitment and retention. So instead of doing like an annual donor satisfaction survey, you would do like after they make an online gift, perhaps you'd say one, maybe have a great thank you email, but maybe separately you would have a link to say, hey, we'd love to know how your online giving experience was. Five kind of key questions that get at these types of things to see how satisfied they were with their online giving experience. Yes? Exactly. The only thing that the annual satisfaction surveys are good at is at making fundraisers feel good about themselves because <laughs> results results are that most supporters are very satisfied. You know why? Because the unsatisfied supporters have already left. Right. Or they don't get the email to get open the link to take the survey exactly. in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. And then preferences. Preferences. Um, well, we all know that we're all different, but yet fundraising treats us all the same. One way they treat fundraising material treats us all the same is they fail to acknowledge our identities. But the other thing is our preferences, like preferences around channel, frequency, type of content we want to consume. And if I don't want to have any interaction with the organization, I just want to keep giving, that should be okay too. But again, it's the element of fear. Charities are afraid of asking people, how often would you like to hear from us? Because they're afraid that people will say never, and then they're not going to be able to market at them. Very few people say never, by the way. Hmm. 
That why? Because they support causes they really love and they mm. believe in. So they want to make a difference. So they want to hear from you. Just they want to do it in their own terms, not your terms. And the other problem with individual preferences is it affects testing. Like one example is is a welcome pack to monthly donors beneficial or not? So let's do a test. Uh, randomly split monthly donors and group A receives the pack, group B does. There will be people who enjoy reading material like this and people who don't. And these effects will cancel themselves out. So the, the key question is, it's, it's not if the welcome pack is beneficial or not for retention in general, but if it is beneficial or not for you as an individual donor, do you want to receive it or not? Mm. And that's completely ignored um, by organizations right now. So I, I've talked to, to Nick in the past about this because there is, uh, especially in direct response, we know to a degree, like people generally don't give if they're not asked. That's not universal, but generally speaking, they need to be presented with an opportunity to give for them to actually give. And so there is that fear that they'll opt out of communications or say, you know, I only need four mailings or don't mail me at all. I'm, I'm good. And we know that, you know, people need mail to, to give. I know there's more and more case studies saying, well, when actually we take the posture of saying, how frequently would you like? And they say four times and we fulfill our obligation and make sure that they're heard and say, we've only like mailed you four times. And if you do that, you should say, because you've requested to only receive four mailings a year, somehow you should reference the fact that you're fulfilling your obligation. That actually response rates go up and you know net cost actually uh, goes down because we're kind of meeting this, this preferences need. But is there a, is there a balance there? Because I know often donors will say, you know, oh, I just give when I want, I don't need to be asked, but then human behavior and testing is like, well, that's not entirely true for a lot of people. So is there a balance with preferences? I mean, we don't want people to just have this huge grid of everything that they want to receive whenever, right? Or, or is that where we want, want to end up? No, we don't. We want to be practical mm. and reasonable. Uh, but think about this. There are many supporters who leave comments in our feedback platform. I, I can only give once a year and I support you every year. Knowing this, what could the charity do? Mm. Why don't they automate this uh, annual gift? Mm. Why don't they ask the supporter if they want to make it a regular annual donation? Mm -hmm. The reason why it's not possible because the systems are not set up for different kind of frequencies of regular gifts. It's it's monthly or nothing usually. Mm. And if you ask organizations to satisfy a donor's preference, which is four times a year or two times a year, then everything collapses. So it's finding the balance between what the supporter desires and a way that it can work for the organization. And yeah, it's not all or nothing. Let's start somewhere and see how we can improve on what we have now, which is zero donor preference <laughs> is met. <laughs> uh, and, and when, when about, when do you suggest kind of asking about preferences? Cause I know, I mean, we do these research studies on nonprofit and what they do and, and some on the way in, as we're signing up, ask us to tick boxes with very little context on, you know, um, you're signing up for an international organization and it just says like Zambia or child slavery 
and you're not exactly sure, you know, like what you're checking. And I've talked to Adrian Sargent who said, you know, we maybe need to let people get to know us a little bit before we start asking people to choose the things that they like or don't like. Is that, is that more of your view as well? Is it's not on the way in, yeah. but maybe soon after they're kind of in our organization or. Well, people can choose channel beforehand because mm. they're familiar with the different channels and they know their preferences. Like for me talking on the phone, it stresses me out. Send me an email. <laughs> I'll read it. Um, so they can choose that beforehand. However, when it comes to specific content from the organization, you should allow them to get to know the content first and give them the opportunity to opt out from specific content when they receive it. So if it's a newsletter in a prominent place in, in that newsletter, ask people if they want to keep receiving it or not, or if they want to opt out. And the same goes for anything else. Yeah. The other thing that we've seen when we do like, you know, uh, campaigns or giving day campaigns or something like that, we'll have an explicit opt out for this campaign. Mm -hmm. But that what that allows you to do is people say, you know, I've already given or I'm not interested in this campaign and don't email me more about this campaign, but they still stay on your list. So if we don't do preferences, the only option people have is like nothing global unsubscribe. You know, I'm out. I, I receive nothing now as opposed to saying, you know, newsletter or this type of update or this weekly thing. You know, if you give them some more of those preferences, then part of the hope, too, is that they'll opt out of a few things and not just have this binary option of I get everything or I get nothing. So I think there's just even a, a practical reality around in our world, email list management, too, of, of having some of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's mutually beneficial. It's not just for the supporter, it's for the organizations too. Because right now people unsubscribe from all emails because that's the only option they have. Right. If they had more options, then organizations would have more opportunities to talk to them as well. Right. Or they like the one out of the three types of emails that they get. So they stay on and they read the one and they don't the other two. And then they're hurting your deliverability for the other two for other people who do like those ones. So exactly. it does, it sounds you know, overly complicated, but the reality is a lot of this stuff is actually not that complicated, especially with the tools and systems that we have that are a lot better at being able to do this. So it really comes down to this kind of, you know, understanding of this is valuable, not just to donors, but to our organization and that buy-in and then making it's a way. It's mutually beneficial. Right, exactly. If organizations speak to the donors based on why they give their identity, if they satisfy their preferences, that will increase their commitment to the organization and their giving. It's, it's a virtuous circle. It's not just for the benefit of supporters. Right. So if, if someone's listening and they've never maybe heard these ideas and concepts and they're just like, this sounds amazing or like, what do I do? How do you suggest organizations kind of get started trying to take more of this approach, whether it's, you know, competence, autonomy, connectedness, or identity preferences, satisfaction, commitment, you know, what are some kind of practical, actionable steps that organizations can take uh, to kind of move towards more of this path? Contact donor voice. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit salesy. Um, no, but honestly, um, you need expert advice on how to properly apply these. So whether it's donor voice or some, someone else, as long as they're expert, proper experts and not the fake experts we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, um, you need expert advice on how to properly apply these insights. Now you can start, um, 
there are many different places where you could start. Some organizations might want to invest on discovering supporters' identities first. That requires some primary research. It doesn't have to be a, a lengthy process. Uh, and then you start capturing identity and start tailoring material based on that. Uh, autonomy, relatedness, competence should be baked into everything organizations do in every interaction with a donor. How you do that, you need expert advice on how to properly uh, fulfill these needs. So I'm not really sure, uh, yeah, it, 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 sounds, it sounds as if I'm saying come to us. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm saying just seek expert advice on how to properly apply these insights. Yeah, and um, it's a good point because even in our um, membership Slack channel, there was this discussion around surveys and surveys are obviously a tool that you all use all the time and they're hugely, hugely important, but it's very easy to, to get wrong or to do a survey and get nothing out of it, you know? So that's where having a consultation or taking, you know, a course with you or something to know, well, if we really want to know someone's satisfaction, for example, like how do mm -hmm. we actually ask that question? Or if we want to understand more of their identity, there's a, there's a way to actually ask those questions. And if you don't know that, that's where very few organizations send surveys overall, like full stop. When we've started researching, it's like less than 5%, at least in their first email communications. It's a tiny number. But then some of them are very just generic, you know, how did you hear about us? And, you know, what do you care about? And you can tell it's just kind of almost like a, a template, right? So it, it is a good example of um, getting some consultation or training because there is a true science behind it. It's not just, oh, yeah, we ran a survey. Um, so you're welcome to say, just come to donor voice, but that, that's great. Come to donor voice. <laughs> we're happy to help. <laughs> uh, I think the, the, the macro principle, and we were talking a little bit about this, you know, off air is, uh, I think fundamentally we still have so much to learn around human and donor behavior. And that's because so much of what we do actually isn't focused on uncovering human and donor behavior. A lot of it is how do we get donations? How do we, you know, get money And to your point? We're not really doing a great job, you know, we're not really growing, we're not really retaining, so we need to spend more time doing this. So, um, and that takes work and it takes some, some very, very smart people like yourself. So thank you so much for kind of unpacking and uh, sharing more about that. Uh, I want to end with just a few kind of like rapid fire uh, questions. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to hear from you. So um, what is your favorite place in the world that you've been to and why? Well, it has to be Machu Picchu in Peru. Um, mm. I mean, I don't think I need to say why. The scenery alone, the knowledge that these are the grounds of an ancient civilization. Even though I'm Greek and I am already <laughs> in the grounds of ancient civilization, it was still a unique experience. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Um, who, who's a person that you think everyone should kind of be following? Well, I don't know about everyone. There are individual differences, right? Ah, okay, um, sorry. But uh, <laughs> I follow Cass Sunstein, the professor at Harvard, hmm. specializes in law and behavioral economics, and he has great ideas simply expressed. So, And I always thought that's the mark of a genius. Can you say the name again? Cass Sunstein. Cass Sunstein's great. Um, You've obviously taken a lot of education and courses. What's the hardest course uh, you've ever taken, and what grade did you get? 
Uh, it's not going to be what you expect me to say. Um, high school geography. <laughs> <laughs> and I barely passed. No I mean, way. I had to memorize all those capitals and populations and products. <laughs> yeah, no, I prefer uh, learning about geography through traveling nowadays. <laughs> well, I can, people at home can't, can't see, but I see a globe up in the, in the, in your, behind you there. Maybe that's yes. the, so you have a quick reference because you're not so good at geography, maybe. Yeah, because I suck at it. <laughs> <laughs> and what about favorite kind of podcast, blog, website, or just kind of general resource? Um, I enjoyed, I don't know if still if it's still happening, the Tell Me Something I Don't Know podcast by <laughs> Stephen Dubner, uh, Freakonomics, um, because it covers many different topics, uh, including... Uh, around behavioral science and application of that. Uh, blog, behavioral scientist. Mm. Good, great. Well, Kiki, thank you so much for taking so much of your time today to share with us. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, on the Agitator blog, for sure, um, the Donor Voice website. And of course, anyone can contact me anytime on LinkedIn or Twitter. Great. Well, thanks again, and please, please, please keep up all your great work. <laughs> Thank you, Brady. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Generosity Freak Show, brought to you by our friends at Virtuous, the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. Be sure to subscribe to all future episodes at generosityfreakshow.com or search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, other platforms that start with S, or wherever you get your pods. Now, the Generosity Freak Show is a production of Next After, where we combine the perpetual learning of a fundraising research lab, the practical application of a digital-first agency, and the rigorous instruction of a training institute to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as possible. You can learn more about the work that we do and get free evidence-based fundraising resources at nextafter.com. Now, this show would not be possible without a few folks, including our mixologist, Jacob Hill, producers Riley Landenberger and Nathan Hill, and the chief visionary behind it all, Tim Kuchuriak. So thank you so much again for listening. And no matter where you are or what you're doing right now, I hope you're having a great day.